Section 18 of the South Pole. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Philippa Jevons. The South Pole by Roald Amundsen. Translation by A. G. Carter. Section 18. Volume 1. Chapter 8. A Day at Framheim. Part 3. At the eastern end of the house the passage was brilliantly lighted up by the window that looked out on this side. I could now see more clearly where I was. Opposite the window, in the part of the barrier that here formed the other wall of the passage, a great hole had been dug. Nothing was to be seen in it but black darkness. My companion knew his way, so I could rely upon him, but I should have hesitated to go in there alone. The hole extended into the barrier, and finally formed a fairly large room with a vaulted roof. A spade and an axe on the floor were all I saw. What in the world was this hall used for? You see, all the ice and snow from here has gone to our water supply. So this was Lindstrom's quarry, from which he had hewn out ice and snow all these months for cooking, drinking and washing. In one of the walls, close to the floor, there was a little hole just big enough for a man to crawl through. Now, you must make yourself small and follow me. We are going to visit Hansen and Visting. And my companion disappeared like a snake into the hole. I threw myself down, quick as lightning, and followed. I would not have cared to be left alone there in pitch darkness. I managed to get hold of one of his calves, and did not let go until I saw light on the other side. The passage we crept through was equally narrow all the way, and forced one to crawl on hands and knees. Fortunately, it was not long. It ended in a fairly large, square room. A low table stood in the middle of the floor, and on it Helmer Hansen was engaged in lashing sledges. The room gave one the impression of being badly lighted, though it had a lamp and candles. On a closer examination, I found that this was due to the number of dark objects the place contained. Against one of the walls there was clothing, immense piles of skin clothing. Over this were spread blankets, to protect it from the rime that was formed on the roof and fell down. Against the opposite wall was a stack of sledges, and at the end, opposite the door, were piles of woollen underclothing. Any outfitter in Christiania might have envied this stock. Here one saw Iceland jackets, sweaters, underclothes of immense thickness and dimensions, stockings, mitts, etc. In the corner, formed by this wall and the one where the sledges stood, was the little hole by which we had entered. Beyond the sledges, in the same wall, there was a door with a curtain in front of it, and from within it came a strange humming. I was much interested to know what this might be, but had to hear first what these two had to say. What do you think of the lashings now, Hanson? Oh, they'll hold right enough. At any rate, they'll be better than they were before. Look here how they've pointed the ends. I leaned forward to see what was wrong with the sledge lashings, and I must say what I saw surprised me. Is such a thing possible? The pointing of a lashing is a thing a sailor is very careful about. He knows that if the end is badly pointed, it does not matter how well the lashing is put on. Therefore it is an invariable rule that lashings must be pointed as carefully as possible. When I looked at this one, what do you think I saw? Why, the end of the lashing was nailed down with a little tack, such as one would use to fasten labels. That would be a nice thing to take to the pole. This final observation of Hansen's was doubtless the mildest expression of what he thought of the work. 
I saw how the new lashings were being put on, and I was quite ready to agree with Hanson that they would do the work. It was, by the way, no easy job, this lashing at minus fifteen degrees Fahrenheit, as the thermometer showed, but Hanson did not seem to mind it. I had heard that Visting also took part in this work, but he was not to be seen. Where could he be? My eyes involuntarily sought the curtain, behind which the humming sound was audible. I was now ready to burst with curiosity. At last the lashing question appears to be thrashed out, and my companion shows signs of moving on. He leaves his lantern and goes up to the curtain. Visting? Yes! The answer seems to come from a far distance. The humming ceases, and the curtain is thrust aside. Then I am confronted by the sight that has impressed me most of all on this eventful day. There sits Visting, in the middle of the barrier, working a sewing machine. The temperature outside is now minus sixty degrees Fahrenheit. This seems to me to require some explanation. I slink through the opening to get a closer view. Then, ah! Oh, I am met by a regular tropical blast. I glance at the thermometer. It shows plus fifty degrees Fahrenheit. But how can this be? Here he is sewing in an ice cellar at plus fifty degrees. I was told in my school days that ice melts at about plus thirty-two degrees. If the same law is still in operation, he ought to be sitting in a shower bath. I go right in. The sewing room is not large, about six feet each way. Besides the sewing machine, a modern treadle machine, the room contains a number of instruments, compasses, and so forth, besides the large tent he is now working on. But what interests me most is the way in which he circumvents the shower bath. I see it now. It is very cleverly contrived. He has covered the roof and walls with tin and canvas, so arranged that all the melting ice goes the same way and runs into a wash-tub that stands below. In this manner he collects washing water, which is such a precious commodity in these regions. Wily man! I afterwards hear that nearly all the outfit for the polar journey is being made in this little ice cabin. Well, with men like these, I don't think Amundsen will deserve any credit for reaching the pole. He ought to be thrashed if he doesn't. Now we have finished here, and must in all probability have seen everything. My guide goes over to the wall where the clothing is lying and begins to rummage in it. A clothing inspection, I say to myself. There's no great fun in that. I sit down on the pile of sledges by the opposite wall, and am going over in my mind all I have seen, when suddenly he thrusts his head forward, like a man who's going to make a dive, and disappears among the bundles of skins. I jump up and make for the piles of clothing. I am beginning to feel quite lost in this mysterious world. In my hurry I collide with Hanson's sledge which falls off the table. He looks round furiously. It's a good thing he could not see me. He looked like murder. I squeeze in between the bundles of clothing. And what do I see? Another hole in the wall, another low, dark passage. I pluck up courage and plunge in. This tunnel is rather higher than the other, and I can walk, bending double. Fortunately, the light at the other end shows up at once, so that my journey in the dark is not a long one this time. I come out into another large room of about the same size as the last, and afterwards learn that it is known as the Crystal Palace. The name is appropriate as crystals sparkle on every side. Against one wall a number of pairs of ski are resting. Elsewhere there are cases, some yellow and some black. 
I guessed the meaning of this at once, after my visit to Stuberud. The yellow cases are the original ones, and the black the improved ones. They think of everything here. Of course, in snow, black is a far better colour than light yellow. The cases will be pleasanter to look at, and very much easier to see at a distance. And if they happen to run short of marks, all they need do will be to break up a case and make as many black marks as they want. They will be easily seen in the snow. The lids of these cases surprise me. They are no bigger than ordinary large milk-can lids, and of the same form. They are loose, as with a milk-can, and are put on in the same way. Then it suddenly occurs to me. When I was sitting on the sledges in Hansen's workshop, I noticed little pieces of wire rope fixed to both ribs of the sledge. There were eight of them on each side, just the right number. They are lashings for four cases, and they will hardly take more than that on a sledge. On one rib all the wire ropes ended in eyes, on the other they ended in thin lashings. Obviously there were four of them to each case, two forward and two aft of the lid. If these were reeved and drawn taut, the cases would be held as in a vice, and the lids could be taken off freely at any time. It was an ingenious idea which would save a lot of work. But there sits Johansen in the middle of the palace, packing. He seems to have a difficult problem to solve. He looks so profoundly thoughtful. Before him is a case half-packed, marked Sledge No. 5, Case No. 4. More singular contents I have never seen. A mixture of pemmican and sausage. I have never heard of sausages on a sledge journey. It must be something quite new. The pieces of pemmican are cylindrical in shape, about two inches high and four and three-quarter inches in diameter. When they are packed, there will be large star-shaped openings between every four of them. Each of these openings is filled up with a sausage, which stands straight up and down and is of exactly the height of the case. But sausage, let me see. Ah, there's a sausage with a tear in its skin. I run across and look. Oh, the cunning rascals! If it isn't milk powder they are smuggling in like this. So every bit of space is utilised. The gaps left by these round pieces of pemmican at the sides of the cases are of course only half as large as the rest, and so cannot take a milk sausage. But don't imagine that the space is wasted. No. Chocolate is broken up into small pieces and stowed in there. When all these cases are packed, they will be as full as if they were of solid wood. There is one ready packed. I must see what it contains. Biscuits. 5,400 biscuits is marked on the lid. They say that angels are specially gifted with patience, but theirs must be a trifle compared with Johansson's. There was absolutely not a fraction of an inch left in that case. The Crystal Palace at present reminds one strongly of a grocer's and chandler's store. Pemmican, biscuits, chocolate and milk sausage lie about everywhere. In the other wall, opposite the ski, there is an opening. I see my companion making for it, but this time I intend to keep an eye on him. He goes up two steps, pushes a trapdoor, and there he stands on the barrier. But I am there too. The trapdoor is replaced and I see that we are close to another door in the barrier, but this is a modern sliding door. It leads into the clothing store. I turn to my host and give him my best thanks for the interesting circular trip through the barrier, expressing my admiration of all the fine engineering works I have seen, and so on. He cuts me short with the remark that we are not nearly done yet. 
"'He has only brought me up this way to save my having to crawl back again. "'We are going in now,' he adds, "'to continue our journey under the surface. "'I see that there is no getting out of it, "'although I am beginning to have enough of these underground passages.' My host seems to guess my thoughts, as he adds, "'We must see them now when the men are working. Afterwards they will not have the same interest.' I see that he is right. Pull myself together and follow him. But fate wills it otherwise. As we come out on the barrier, Hansen is standing there with his sledge and six fresh dogs harnessed. My companion has just time to whisper to me, "'Jump on, I'll wait here.' when the sledge starts off at a terrific pace, with me as a passenger unsuspected by Hansen. We went along so that the snow dashed over us. He had his dogs well in hand, this fellow, I could see that, but they were a wild lot of rascals he had to deal with. I heard the names of Hock and Togo in particular. They seemed inclined for mischief. All of a sudden they darted back on their companions under the traces and got the whole team in a tangle, but they were not able to do very much, as the whip, which was wielded with great dexterity, constantly sang about their ears. The two sausages I had noticed on the slope, Ring and Mylius, were leaders. They too were full of pranks, but kept their places. High and Rap were also in the team. Rap, whose ear was split, would have liked very much to get his friend High to join in a little fight with Hock and Togo, but for the whip. It swished to and fro, in and out among them without mercy, and made them behave like good boys. After us, some yards behind, came Zanko. He seemed to be put out because he had not been harnessed. Meanwhile we went at a gallop up the hill to the depot, and the last flag was passed. There was a marked difference in the daylight here now. It was eleven o'clock, and the flush of dawn had risen a good way in the sky, and was approaching the north. The numbers and marks on the cases were easily visible. Hansen drew up smartly by the rows of cases and halted. We stepped off the sledge. He stood still for a moment and looked round, then turned the sledge over with the runners in the air. I suppose he did this to prevent the dogs making off while his back was turned. Personally, I thought it was a poor safeguard. I jumped up on a case and sat there to await what developments might come. And they came in the form of Zanko. Hansen had moved off a little way with a piece of paper in his hand, and seemed to be examining the cases as he went along. Zanko had now reached his friends, Ring and Mylius, and the meeting was a very cordial one on both sides. This was too much for Hock. He was on to them like a rocket, followed by his friend Togo. High and Rap never let such an opportunity escape them, and they eagerly flung themselves into the thick of the fight. "'Stop that, you blaggers!' It was Hansen who threw this admonition in advance as he came rushing back. Zanko, who was free, had kept his head sufficiently to observe the approaching danger. Without much hesitation he cut away and made for Framheim with all possible speed. Whether the others missed their sixth combatant, or whether they too became aware of Hansen's threatening approach, I am unable to determine. Certain it is that they all got clear of each other, as though at a given signal, and made off the same way. The capsized sledge made no difference to them. They went like the wind over the slope and disappeared by the flagstaff. Hansen did not take long to make up his mind, but what was the use? He went as fast as he could, no doubt, but had reached no farther than to the flagstaff when the dogs, with the capsized sledge behind them, ran into Framheim and were stopped there. I went quietly back, well pleased with the additional experience.
Down on the level I met Hansen on his way to the depot a second time. He looked extremely angry, and the way in which he used the whip did not promise well for the dog's backs. Sanka was now harnessed in the team. On my return to Framheim I saw no one, so I slipped into the penthouse and waited for an opportunity of getting into the kitchen. This was not long in coming. Puffing and gasping like a small locomotive, Lindstrom swung in from the passage that led round the house. In his arms he again carried the big bucket full of ice, and an electric lamp hung from his mouth. In order to open the kitchen door he had only to give it a push with his knee. I slipped in. The house was empty. Now, I thought, I shall have a good chance of seeing what Lindstrom does when he is left alone. He put down the bucket of ice, and gradually filled up the water-pot which was on the fire. Then he looked at the clock. A quarter past eleven. Good. Dinner will be ready in time. He drew a long, deep sigh, then went into the room, filled and lit his pipe. Thereupon he sat down, and took up a doll that was sitting on a letter-weight. His whole face lighted up. One could see how pleased he was. He wound up the doll and put it on the table. As soon as he let it go, it began to turn somersaults, one after another, endlessly. And Lindstrom? Well, he laughed till he must have been near convulsions, crying out all the while, "'That's right, I'll have I go it again!' I then looked at the doll carefully, and it was certainly something out of the common. The head was that of an old woman, evidently a disagreeable old maid, with yellow hair, a hanging underjaw, and a lovesick expression. She wore a dress of red and white check, and when she turned head over heels, it caused, as might be expected, some disturbance of her costume. The figure, one could see, had originally been an acrobat, but these ingenious polar explorers had transformed it into this hideous shape. When the experiment was repeated, and I understood the situation, I could not help roaring too, but Lindstrom was so deeply occupied that he did not hear me. After amusing himself for about ten minutes with this, he got tired of Olava, and put her up on the weight again. She sat there, nodding and bowing, until she was forgotten. Meanwhile Lindstrom had gone to his bunk, and was lying half in it. Now, I thought to myself, he is going to take a little nap before dinner. But no, he came out again at once, holding a tattered old pack of cards in his hand. He went back to his place, and began a quiet and serious game of patience. It did not take long, and was probably not very complicated, but it served its purpose. One could see what a pleasure it was to him whenever a card came in its right place. Finally, all the cards were in order. He had finished the game. He sat a little while longer, enjoying the sight of the finished packs. Then he picked them all up with a sigh, and rose, mumbling, "'Yes, he'll get to the pole, that's sure, and what's more, he'll get there first. He put the cards back on the shelf in his bunk, and looked well pleased with himself. Then the process of laying the table began once more, but with far less noise than in the morning. There was nobody to be annoyed by it now. At five minutes to twelve, a big ship's bell was rung, and not long after the diners began to arrive. They did not make any elaborate toilet, but sat down to table at once. The dishes were not many. A thick black seal soup, with all manner of curious things in it, Seal meat cut into small dice is no doubt the expression, but it would be misleading here. Large dice, we had better call them, with potatoes, carrots, cabbage, turnips, peas, celery, prunes and apples. I should like to know what our cooks at home would call that dish. Two large jugs of syrup and water stood on the table. 
Now I had another surprise. I was under the impression that a dinner like this passed off in silence, but that was by no means the case here. They talked the whole time, and the conversation chiefly turned on what they had been doing during the forenoon. For dessert they had some green plums. Pipes and books soon made their appearance. By about two o'clock the boys gave fresh signs of life. I knew they were not going to work that afternoon, St. Hans' Eve, but habit is a strange thing. Bjarland rose in a peremptory fashion, and asked who was going to have the first turn. After a lot of questions and answers, it was decided that Hassel should be the first. What it was, I could not make out. I heard them talk about one or two primuses, and say that half an hour was the most one could stand, but that did not mean anything to me. I should have to stick to Hassel, who was going first. If there should be no second man, I should at any rate have seen what the first one did. Everything became quiet again. It was only in the kitchen that one could tell that the barrier was inhabited. At half-past two, Bjarland, who had been out, came in and announced that now it was all a mass of steam. I watched Hassel anxiously. Yes, this announcement seemed to put life into him. He got up and began to undress. Very strange, I thought. What can this be? I tried the Sherlock Holmes method. First, Bjarland goes out. That is fact number one. Then he comes back. That I could also make sure of. So far the method worked well. But then comes the third item. It is all a mass of steam. What in the world does that mean? The man has gone out, if not onto the barrier, then certainly into it, into snow ice, and then he comes back and says it is all a mass of steam. It seems ridiculous, absurd. I send Sherlock Holmes to the deuce, and watch Hassel with increasing excitement. If he takes any more off, I felt I was blushing and half turned my head, but there he stopped. Then he picked up a towel, and away he went, out through the penthouse door. It was all I could do to follow him, along the snow tunnel in nothing but. Here steam really began to meet us, getting thicker and thicker as we came into the barrier. The tunnel became so full of steam that I could see nothing. I thought with longing of the tale of Amundsen's anorak that was so useful on such occasions, but here there was nothing to take hold of. Far away in the fog I could see a light, and made my way to it with caution. Before I knew where I was, I stood at the other end of the passage, which led into a large room covered with rime, and closed overhead by a mighty dome of ice. The steam was troublesome and spoiled my view of the room. But what had become of Hassel? I could only see Bjarland. Then suddenly the fog seemed to clear for an instant, and I caught sight of a bare leg disappearing into a big black box, and a moment later I saw Hassel's smiling face on the top of the box. A shudder passed through my frame. He looked as if he had been decapitated. On further consideration, his features were too smiling. The head could not be severed from the body yet. Now the steam began to clear away little by little, and at last one could see clearly what was going on. I had to laugh. It was all very easy to understand now. But I think Sherlock Holmes would have found it a hard nut to crack if he had been set down blindfold on the Antarctic barrier, as I was, so to speak, and asked to explain the situation. It was one of those folding American vapour baths that Hassel sat in. The bathroom, which had looked so spacious and elegant in the fog, reduced itself to a little snow-hut of insignificant appearance. The steam was now collected in the bath, 
and one could see by the face above it that it was beginning to be warm there. The last thing I saw Bjarland do was to pump two primus lamps that were placed just under the bath up to high pressure, and then disappear. What a lesson an actor might have had in watching the face before me! It began with such a pleasant expression, well-being was written upon it in the brightest characters. Then, by degrees, the smile wore off, and gave place to seriousness. But this did not last long. There was a trembling of the nostrils, and very soon it could be clearly seen that the bath was no longer of a pleasant nature. The complexion, from being normal, had changed to an ultraviolet tint. The eyes opened wider and wider, and I was anxiously awaiting a catastrophe. It came, but in a very different form from that I had expected. Suddenly and noiselessly the bath was raised, and the steam poured out, laying a soft white curtain over what followed. I could see nothing, only heard that the two primuses were turned down. I think it took about five minutes for the steam to disappear, and what did I see then? Hassel, bright as a new shilling, dressed in his best for St. Hans's Eve. I availed myself of the opportunity to examine the first, and probably the only, vapour-bath on the Antarctic barrier. It was, like everything else I had seen, very ingeniously contrived. The bath was a high box without bottom, and with a hole large enough for the head in the top. All the walls were double, and made of windproof material, with about an inch between for the air to circulate. This box stood on a platform which was raised a couple of feet above the snow surface. The box fitted into a groove, and was thus absolutely tight. In the platform immediately under the bath, a rectangular opening was cut, lined around with rubber packing, and into this opening a tin box fitted accurately. Under the tin box stood two primus lamps. And now everyone will be able to understand why Hassel felt warm. A block hung from the top of the hut with a rope reeved in it, one end was made fast to the upper edge of the bath, and the other went down into the bath. In this way the bather himself could raise the bath without assistance, and free himself when the heat became too great. The temperature outside the snow wall was minus 65 degrees Fahrenheit. Cunning lads! I afterwards heard that Bjarland and Hassel had constructed this ingenious bath. I now went back to the house, and saw how they all, almost, made use of the vapour-bath. By a quarter past five all the bathing was concluded, and everyone put on his furs. It was evident that they were going out. I followed the first man who left the hut. He was provided with a lantern, and indeed it was wanted. The weather had changed, a south-west wind had sprung up suddenly, and now the air was thick with snow. It was not a fall of snow, for one could see the stars in the zenith, but snow caught up by the wind and whirled along. A man had to know the surroundings well to find his way now. One had to feel. It was impossible to keep one's eyes open. I took up a position in lee of a snowdrift, and waited to see what would happen. The dogs did not seem to be inconvenienced by the change of weather. Some of them lay curled up in a ring with their nose under their tail on the snow, while others were running about. One by one the men came out, each had a lantern in his hand. As they arrived at the place where the dogs were, each was surrounded by his team, who followed him to the tents with joyous howls. But everything did not pass off peacefully. I heard, I think it was in Bjarland's tent, a deafening noise going on, and looked in at the door. 
Down there, deep below the surface, they were having a warm time. All the dogs were mixed up together in one mass. Some were biting, some shrieking, some howling. In the midst of this mass of raging dogs I saw a human figure swinging around, with a bunch of dog collars in one hand, while he dealt blows right and left with the other, and blessed to the dogs all the time. I thought of my calves, and withdrew. But the human figure that I had seen evidently won the mastery, as the noise gradually subsided and all became quiet. As each man got his dogs tied up, he went over to the meat tent, and took a box of cut-up seal meat which stood on the wall out of the dog's reach. This meat had been cut up earlier in the day by two men. They took it in turns, I heard. Two men had this daily duty. The dogs were then fed, and half an hour after this was done, the camp again lay as I had found it in the morning, quiet and peaceful. With a temperature of minus 65 degrees Fahrenheit, and a velocity of 22 miles an hour, the southwester swept over the barrier, and whirled the snow high into the air above Framheim. But in their tents the dogs lay full-fed and contented, and felt nothing of the storm. In the hut preparations for a feast were going on, and now one could really appreciate a good house. The change from the howling wind, the driving snow, the intense cold, and the absolute darkness was great indeed when one came in. Everything was newly washed, and the table was gaily decorated. Small Norwegian flags were everywhere, on the table and walls. The festival began at six, and all the Vikings came merrily in. Lindstrom had done his best, and that is not saying a little. I specially admired his powers and his liberality, and I think even in the short time I have observed him he has shown no signs of being stingy when he appeared with the Napoleon cakes. Now I must tell you that these cakes were served after every man had put away a quarter of a plum pudding. The cakes were delightful to look at, the finest puff pastry with layers of vanilla custard and cream. They made my mouth water. But the size of them! There could not be one of these mountains of cake to every man. One among them all, perhaps, if they could be expected to eat Napoleon cakes at all after plum pudding. But why had he brought in eight? Two enormous dishes with four on each. Good heavens! One of the Vikings had just started and was making short work of his mountain. And one after another they all walked into them until the whole eight had disappeared. I should have nothing to say about hunger, misery and cold when I came home. My head was going round. The temperature must have been as many degrees above zero in here as it was below zero outside. I looked up at Visting's bunk, where a thermometer was hanging, plus 95 degrees Fahrenheit. The Vikings did not seem to take the slightest notice of this trifle. Their work with the Napoleons continued undisturbed. Soon the gorgeous cake was a thing of the past, and cigars came out. Everyone, without exception, allowed himself this luxury. Up to now they had not shown much sign of abstinence. I wanted to know what was their attitude with regard to strong drinks. I had heard, of course, that indulgence in alcohol on polar expeditions was very harmful, not to say dangerous. Poor boys, I thought to myself, that must be the reason of your fondness for cake. A man must have one vice at least. Deprived of the pleasure of drinking, they make up for it in gluttony. Yes, now I could see it quite plainly, and I was heartily sorry for them. I wondered how the Napoleons felt now. They looked rather depressed. No doubt the cake took some time to settle down.
Lindstrom, who seemed unquestionably the most wide awake of them all, came in and began to clear the table. I expected to see every man roll into his bunk to digest. But no, that side of the question did not appear to trouble them much. They remained seated, as though expecting more. Oh, yes, of course, there was coffee to come. Lindstrom was already in the doorway with cups and jugs. A cup of coffee would be just the thing after such a meal. Stiffered! This was Lindstrom's voice, calling from some place in the far distance. Hurry up, before they get warm! I rushed after Stiverud to see what the things were that were not to get warm. I thought it might possibly be something that was to be taken outside. Great heaven! There was Lindstrom lying on his stomach up in the loft, and handing down through the trap-door, what do you think? A bottle of Benedictine and a bottle of punch, both white with frost. Now I could see that the fish were to swim, what's more they were to be drowned. A happier smile than that with which Stiverud received the bottles, or more careful and affectionate handling than they received on their way through the kitchen, I have never seen. I was touched. Ah, these boys knew how a liqueur should be served. Must be served cold, was on the label of the punch bottle. I can assure P. A. Larson that his prescription was followed to the letter that evening. Then the gramophone made its appearance, and it did me good to see the delight with which it was received. They seemed to like this best, after all, and every man had music to suit his taste. All agreed to honour the cook for all his pains, and the concert therefore began with Tarara Bumdier, followed by the Apache Waltz. His part of the programme was concluded with a humorous recitation. Meanwhile he stood at the doorway with a beatific smile. This did him good. In this way the music went the round, and all had their favourite tunes. Certain numbers were kept to the last. I could see that they were to the taste of all. First came an air from the Huguenots, sung by Mikhailova. This showed the Vikings to be musical. It was beautifully sung. "'But look here!' cried an impatient voice. "'Aren't we going to have Borkildbrin tonight?' "'Yes,' was the answer. "'Here she comes!' And Solveig's song followed. It was a pity Borkildbrin was not there. I believe the most rapturous applause would not have moved her so much as the way her song was received here that evening." As the notes rang clear and pure through the room, one could see the faces grow serious. No doubt the words of the poem affected them all as they sat there in the dark winter night, on the vast wilderness of ice, thousands and thousands of miles from all that was dear to them. I think that was so, but it was the lovely melody given with perfect finish and rich natural powers that opened their hearts. One could see how it did them good. It was as though they were afraid of the sound of their own voices afterwards. At last one of them could keep silence no longer. "'My word, how beautifully she sings!' he exclaimed. "'Especially the ending. I was a little bit afraid that she would give the last note too sharp in spite of the masterly way in which she controls her voice. And it's outrageously high, too. But instead of that, the note came so pure and soft and full that it alone was enough to make a better man of one. And then this enthusiastic listener tells them how he once heard the same song, but with a very different result. It went quite well, he says, until it came to the final note. Then you could see the singer fill her mighty bosom for the effort, and out came a note so shrill that, well, you remember the walls of Jericho. After this the gramophone is put away. No one seems to want any more.
Now it is already half-past eight. It must be nearly bedtime. The feast has lasted long enough with food, drink, and music. Then they all get on their feet, and there is a cry of bows and arrows. Now, I say to myself, as I withdraw into the corner where the clothes are hanging, now the alcohol is beginning to take effect. It is evident that something extraordinarily interesting is going to take place, as they are all so active. One of them goes behind the door and fetches out a little cork target, and another brings out of his bunk a box of darts. So it is dart-throwing. The children must be amused. The target is hung up on the door of the kitchen leading to the penthouse, and the man who is to throw first takes up his position at the end of the table at a distance of three yards. And now the shooting competition begins, amid laughter and noise. There are marksmen of all kinds, good, bad, and indifferent. Here comes the champion. One can see that by the determined way in which he raises the dart and sends it flying. His will no doubt be the top score. That is Stuberid. Of the five darts he throws, two are in the bull's-eye and three close to it. The next is Johansson. He is not bad either, but he does not equal the other's score. Then comes Bjarland. I wonder whether he is as smart at this game as he is on ski. He places himself at the end of the table, like the others, but takes a giant stride forward. He is a leery one, this. Now he is not more than a yard and a half from the target. He throws well. The darts describe a great round arch. This is what is known as throwing with a high trajectory, and it is received with great applause. The trajectory turns out to be too high, and all his darts land in the wall above the door. Hassel throws with calculation. What he calculates it is not easy to understand, not on hitting the target, apparently, but if his calculations have to do with the kitchen door, then they are more successful. Whether Amundsen calculates or not makes very little difference. His are all misses, in any case. Visting's form is the same. Prestrud is about halfway between the good shots and the bad. Hansen throws like a professional, slinging his dart with great force. He evidently thinks he is hunting walrus. All the scores are carefully entered in a book, and prizes will be given later on. Meanwhile, Lindstrom is playing patience. His day's work is now done but besides his cards, he is much interested in what is going on round the target, and puts in a good word here and there. Then he gets up with a determined look. He has one more duty to perform. This consists of changing the light from the big lamp under the ceiling to two small lamps, and the reason for the change is that the heat of the big lamp would be too strongly felt in the upper bunks. This operation is a gentle hint that the time has come for certain people to turn in. The room looks dark now that the great sun under the ceiling is extinguished. The two lamps that are now alight are good enough, but one seems, nevertheless, to have made a retrograde step towards the days of pinewood torches. By degrees, then, the Vikings began to retire to rest. My description of the day's life at Framheim would be incomplete if I did not include this scene in it. Lindstrom's chief pride, I had been told, was that he was always the first man in bed. He would willingly sacrifice a great deal to hold this record. As a rule, he had no difficulty in fulfilling his desire, as nobody tried to be before him, but this evening it was otherwise. Stubberud was far advanced with his undressing when Lindstrom came in, and seeing a chance at last of being first in bed, at once challenged the cook. Lindstrom, who did not quite grasp the situation, accepted the challenge, 
and then the race began, and was followed by the others with great excitement. Now Stubberud is ready, and is just going to jump into his bunk, which is over Lindstrom's, when he suddenly feels himself clutched by the leg and held back. Lindstrom hangs on to the leg with all his force, crying out in the most pitiable voice, "'Wait a bit, old man, till I'm undressed too!' It reminded me rather of the man who was going to fight, and called out, "'Wait till I get a hold of you!' But the other was not to be persuaded. He was determined to win. Then Lindstrom let go, tore off his braces, he had time for no more, and dived headfirst into his bunk. Stubberud tried to protest. This was not fair, he was not undressed, and so on. "'That doesn't matter,' replied the fat man. "'I was first all the same.' The scene was followed with great amusement and shouts of encouragement, and ended in a storm of applause when Lindstrom disappeared into his bunk with his clothes on. But that was not the end of the business, for his leap into the bunk was followed by a fearful crash, to which no one paid any attention in the excitement of the moment, himself least of all. But now the consequences appeared. The shelf along the side of his bunk, on which he kept a large assortment of things, had fallen down and filled the bunk with rifles, ammunition, gramophone discs, tool-boxes, sweetmeat boxes, pipes, tins of tobacco, ashtrays, box of matches, etc., and there was no room left for the man himself. He had to get out again, and his defeat was doubly hard. With shame he acknowledged Stubberud as the victor. But, he added, you shan't be first another time. One by one the others turned in. Books were produced, here and there a pipe as well and in this way the last hour was passed. At eleven o'clock precisely, the lamps were put out, and the day was at an end. Soon after, my host goes to the door, and I follow him out. I had told him I had to leave again this evening, and he is going to see me off. "'I'll take you as far as the depot,' he says. "'The rest of the way you can manage by yourself. The weather has improved considerably, but it is dark, horribly dark. "'So that we may find the way more easily,' he says, "'I'll take my trio.' If they don't see the way, they'll smell it out. Having let loose the three dogs, who evidently wonder what the meaning of it may be, he puts a lantern on a stack of timber, to show him the way back, I suppose, and we go off. The dogs are evidently accustomed to go this way, but they set off at once in the direction of the depot. Yes, says my companion, it's not to be wondered at that they know the way. They have gone it every day, once at least, often two or three times since we came here. There are three of us who always take our daily walk in this direction, Bjarland, Stubberud, and I. As you saw this morning, those two went out at half-past eight. They did that so as to be back to work at nine. We have so much to do that we can't afford to lose any time, so they take their walk to the depot and back. At nine I generally do the same. The others began the winter with the same good resolution. They were all so enthusiastic for a morning walk. But the enthusiasm didn't last long, and now we three are the only enthusiasts left. But, short as the way is, about six hundred and fifty yards, we should not venture to go without those marks that you saw, and without our dogs. I have often hung out a lantern, too, but when it is as cold as this evening, the paraffin freezes and the light goes out. Losing one's way here might be a very serious matter, and I don't want to run the risk of it. Here we have the first mark-post. We were lucky to come straight upon it. The dogs are on ahead, making for the depot. Another reason for being very careful on the way to the depot is that there is a big hole, twenty feet deep, just by a hummock on that slope, where you remember the last flag stands. If one missed one's way and fell into it, one might get hurt. We passed close to the second mark. 
The next two marks are more difficult to hit off. They're so low, and I often wait and call the dogs to me to find the way, as I'm going to do now, for instance. It's impossible to see anything unless you come right on it, so we must wait and let the dogs help us. I know exactly the number of paces between each mark, and when I have gone that number I stop and first examine the ground close by. If that is no good, I whistle for the dogs, who come at once. Now you'll see. A long whistle. It won't be long before they're here. I can hear them already. He was right. The dogs came running out of the darkness straight towards us. To let them see that we want to find the way to the depot, we must begin to walk on. We did so. As soon as the dogs saw this, they went forward again, but this time at a pace that allowed us to keep up with them at a trot, and soon after we were at the last mark. As you see, my lantern over at the camp is just going out, so I hope you'll excuse my accompanying you farther. You know your way, anyhow. With these words we parted, and my host went back, followed by the faithful trio, whilst I... End of section 18. End of volume 1, chapter 8. A Day at Framheim.